0: Morning. Uh, There are two readings today from the book of Revelation, and the first one is in chapter two, verses one to seven, and you can find that on page one, two, three, four of the church Bible. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The second reading is from Revelations chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, which is on page 1236 of the Church Bible. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Yvonne. Um, The music group are now going to... Heavenly Father, we pray that in the written word and through the spoken word we may see the living word, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Keep up the good work. There's room for improvement. Must do better. As we approach the end of another school year. We may recall our teachers writing such phrases in our school reports. And we may be tempted to think of these messages to the churches in our reading in similar terms, as progress reports on them from the writer, John. But they carry much more authority than that, for each of the messages begins These are the words of, followed by a description of the risen Christ. It was Jesus himself who was addressing these churches. And they needed to take to heart what he was saying to them. The order in which the seven churches are addressed in the book of Revelation is geographical. It reflects the journey that John's letter would have taken on its way from the island of Patmos where he was exiled. Firstly to Ephesus by boat and then onward by road to Smyrna and all the way to Laodicea. However, we're going to consider them in a different order. This morning we're looking at the first and last of the messages which contain warnings. And next month, we'll look at two churches who were warmly commended by Jesus. Maybe we feel drawn towards the messages that are more affirming, but it's important that we see pitfalls to avoid as well as examples to follow. These messages... Come from the one who loves us and wants the very best for us. So let's listen carefully to these warnings and heed what they say. We'll find it helpful to notice the pattern that each message follows. The book of Revelation as a whole begins with a vision of the risen Christ and ends with a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. That is, it starts with who Christ is and moves towards the future that God has planned for his people. Each of the messages to the churches has the same structure. Last week we saw how chapter 1 described Jesus as the faithful witness who is now among the lampstands. Following on from that, the messages in today's reading were introduced as being from the one who walks among the lampstands and who is the faithful and true witness. And they concluded by mentioning the tree of life and the throne of Christ, the feature in the final chapters of the book. Each message also contains an appeal to listen, reminiscent of the words of Jesus when he told the parable of the sower. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this morning... Let's hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Ephesus was a major city, one of the largest in the whole Roman Empire. Its Temple of Artemis, or Diana as the Romans called her, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This huge complex attracted large crowds of visitors for its festivals and contributed substantially to the local economy. There were also two temples in the city dedicated to the worship of Caesar. The Apostle Paul spent more than two years in Ephesus and it became a key center for Christian teaching and outreach. However, the rapid spread of the gospel began to threaten the sales of merchandise for the temple of Artemis. This led to rioting and Paul was forced to leave. Later when he met the elders of that church again he urged them to be on their guard against false teachers. The church in that area remained close to Paul's heart and in his letter to them he wrote that he rejoiced over their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all his people. But the book of Revelation was written a generation later. So now, what kind of message would they receive in Ephesus? It begins, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Last week we read that the lampstands represent the churches. This is a reminder that Jesus was present with them and watching over them. So, what had He observed? He begins by commanding them for several important qualities. And if you want to read along, this is in page one, two, three, four of the church Bibles. We read, "I know your deeds." your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. They were a hard-working church and they persevered. That wouldn't have been easy in a city dominated by that temple to Artemis and where there was also pressure to take part in Caesar worship. Hostility to the gospel had forced Paul to leave the city decades earlier and it would have continued after he had left. But the believers there hadn't caved in. They'd endured hardship because of their loyalty to Jesus. They had also been alert to false teaching. They would remembered that warning from Paul all those years earlier when he had said, After I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. They had indeed guarded the apostles teaching and another thing said in their favor was that they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. This seems to be a reference to people who urged Christians to blend in with the lifestyle of society around them. But the Ephesian church was having none of it. This is an impressive list of commendations from Jesus. The church was sound in its beliefs upright in its behavior and persevered in the face of opposition what's not to like something important actually for we read yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first consider how far you've fallen We might wonder if this refers to love for Jesus or for others. But these are bound up together. For as John wrote in his first letter, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And love is also bound up with a desire to spread the gospel. Indeed, Jesus had said to his disciples, the love of most will grow cold but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. He was making a contrast between those whose love grows cold and those who continue to spread the gospel. So now we begin to have a clearer picture of the Ephesian church. They were sound in their beliefs and upright in their behavior but they lost their first love and their passion for the gospel. Maybe they were succumbing to the attractions of materialism, for Ephesus was a thriving wealthy port. Whatever the reason, they had moved away from the love they would had when they first believed. The gospel no longer stirred their hearts. Their joy and intimacy with God had withered. Their orthodoxy was very important, but it was not enough on its own. If God's love did not continue to motivate them, then the life would go out of their church. They'd already fallen a long way. A generation earlier, they'd been a major center for Christianity, led by Paul and then Timothy. But a church cannot free wheel on its past reputation what was to be done they're told repent and do the things you did at first if you do not repent I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place if they didn't change the church would have no future they needed to rediscover Jesus love so it could shape their lives once more that was how he wanted them to live now and it would lead to the future he had planned for them. For he promised to the one who is victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The church in Ephesus had been careful to resist pressure from others. What they now needed to address was the dullness of their own hearts towards God. It's time for us to move inland from Ephesus. The city of Laodicea was a wealthy commercial hub at the junction of important trade routes. It was a key centre for banking, for the manufacture of woolen garments and for medicine, in particular they produced a valued eye ointment from the dust of local rock. So, the people of Laodicea were wealthy, healthy, and well-dressed. Confident of their self-sufficiency. Indeed, when the city was struck by a severe earthquake, they announced with pride that they had no need for help from Rome with its reconstruction. However, not everything there was ideal. The local river would dry up in the summer, so they had to pipe water in from elsewhere. The nearby town of Colossae was well supplied with cold, fresh water. And the town of Herapolis had hot springs that were rich in minerals. But the water that reached Laodicea had to travel many miles stone pipes. By the time it reached the city, it was tepid and tasted bad. Visitors instinctively spat it out when they tasted it for the first time. It seems that the Christians in Laodicea shared in the local prosperity. Like their city they declared, I do not need a thing. However, business activities were are often tied up with Caesar worship. So we might begin to wonder about the compromises they made to maintain their standard of living. Let's now look at the message that church received. You just have to turn over a page if you're following in the church Bibles. It begins These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The ruler of God's creation. That pointer to Jesus as the faithful witness raises the natural question were they also faithful witnesses? As with Ephesus, Jesus continues, I know your deeds. So let's look at what they were commended for. Actually, Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say about them whatsoever. Instead, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out from my mouth. They weren't like that deliciously cool fresh water in Colossae. Or those rich hot springs in Hierapolis. Instead, like the unpalatable tepid water in Laodicea, Jesus found them hard to stomach. They were neither one thing nor the other. Their response to his death on the cross was half hearted. The gospel message just wasn't that important to them. However, As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. The city's materialism and self-sufficiency had been absorbed by the church They urgently needed to grasp their desperate spiritual condition. Jesus explained it in terms of the things that their city was famous for, their wealth, clothing, and eye ointment. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see so what did Jesus call them to do now we read those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. That message was vividly captured in Holman Hunt's famous painting of Christ knocking on a door where the handle is only on the inside. What would have shocked them was Jesus saying that he was on the outside of their church. But just as striking is the statement that he was still patiently standing there, continuing to knock. He was waiting for them to let him in and have fellowship with them. He hadn't given up on them. He had all they needed and he wanted to give it to them. The things they treasured were worthless in comparison. Would they open the door to him? Would they stop being tepid and become all for Jesus? He pointed To what he wanted to share with them in the future. To the one who is victorious. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious. And sat with my father on his throne. As John Stott put it. If we let Christ enter the house of our heart. He will let us enter the house of his father. If we invite Jesus to sit with us at our table, then he will invite us to sit with him on his throne. So, what should we take away from these two messages to the churches? Their sobering tones should give us pause for thought. They contain warnings that we should heed in our church and in their own lives. The Ephesian church was hardworking and persevered in the face of persecution. They upheld the teaching of the apostles and lived by its moral standards. And they'd had an outstanding reputation in the past for teaching God's word and for gospel outreach. But now they'd lost sight of the most important thing of all keeping the love of Jesus as seen on the cross at the center of all they were and did. The church in Laodicea had nothing at all to commend it in Jesus' eyes. They were in great shape financially. They were comfortable and content. But Jesus was peripheral to their lives and he wasn't willing to accept such a minor role. They were unaware of being poor, blind, and naked in his eyes. They hadn't grasped that he was on the outside knocking to get in. But he hadn't stopped knocking. He wanted to have fellowship with them. He wanted to spend eternity with them. Would they open the door? Although there were significant differences between these two churches, they shared a common failure. They'd either weakened their personal connection with Jesus or lost it altogether. That is the key issue for us as well. Without Jesus, we have nothing of eternal value. With him, we have everything that matters. So let's resolve that our lives will be shaped by his love shown to us on the cross and by the gospel message that he has entrusted to us. Did these churches heed their warnings? Correspondence in the early church indicates that the Ephesians did, for it shows that the church there was again thriving spiritually in subsequent decades. What about us? Will we heed these warnings to prioritize above all, our relationship with Jesus. Let's hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.